The Toby Gribbon Show. Highlights. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Kirk Thatcher is a writer, producer, designer and director who's worked with The Muppets since 1989 and he's with us here just now. How are you doing? I'm good. Cheers. Actually, I've worked with The Muppets since 1987, oh. but the first thing I worked on that was made was came out in 1989. So uh. we worked on it in 1988 and I met Jim and I met Jim, I think, in 86, started working with him in 87. So, so yes, yeah. a long time. I said I'm the new. You know, if you work with the Muppets over 30 years, they call you the new guy. <laughs> well, Muppet Wiki is wrong, Ben, and we can now cite this interview as evidence exactly. that you started in '87. That's right. Well, yes, I met Jim. I guess it's probably I met Jim in '87 or '86. Started working with him freelance, but yeah. Anyway, it's all it's all gray. All <laughs> areas, all gray areas. <laughs> yeah. So, what were you like when you were younger? Were you particularly creative and interested in the arts? was much thinner um <laughs> yes i was always artistic and probably a little autistic as an adult i realized oh i was out mildly on the spectrum i think most artists yeah. are but yeah i <laughs> i love to read science encyclopedias originally i loved animals and biology but mainly creatures and animals and then uh, i started reading and i just read science books and then i started reading sci- mm-hmm. uh, science fiction and started to enjoy things like Star Trek and Lost in Space and Space 1999 and things like that were on the telly. And then King Kong, oh, yeah. the original, and the Ray Harry has a movie. So all that inspired me. And then comic books, I got into comic books. But yeah, I was very artistic. I made movies, little short Super 8 films with not really focusing on plot, but more just like learning how to make a shot and what's a good you know camera angle and stuff like that. Mm. So very self-motivated. Um, I was lucky in that my mother was a school teacher and she yeah. knew how to, I, no one in my family had an artistic bone in their body and even yeah. an extended family. I had one cousin who threw pots in college and everyone's like, oh, she's an artist. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, they kind of looked at me like I had two heads, but again, my mother being a teacher was supportive because she had had students. Yeah, uh, She taught fifth grade. So I don't know what that is. It's like 12 year olds. And one of them, she, she would tell me she had taught Walt Disney's nephew um, and that he was artistic and drew in his papers and everything. And so she had seen it and knew that you didn't break my hands and tell me I'm going to be a, 
<laughs> a reprobate if I continue drawing and pursuing the arts. Um, because my father is a lawyer and very, very serious and just thought it was all, you know, frivolous. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so I was, I was a nerd, you know, I loved science fiction. I went to, I was just telling a friend today, I started going to conventions. I wanted to go to conventions when I was 12, wow. um, but my mom wouldn't let me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I love science fiction, fantasy art and special effects, movies and special effects. So yeah. kind of a weird kid that I like to spend hours. I wasn't super social. Yeah. It's not that I didn't like people. I just could spend hours either reading or drawing. So making model kits, all that stuff. Mm. So what was your first kind of big break? to get into the film and entertainment industry? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a confluence of events, but mm. probably the biggest break was Star Wars had come out. It was 1977 and the movie yeah. had just been released. I knew that it was coming out because I was a subscriber to a magazine called Cinefantastique that basically covered fantasy and science fiction films. And they had a little blurb and, a, and I think it was literally a picture of a Death Star trench shot and it said this movie's coming out this year called The Star Wars. And uh, it supposedly has a lot of spaceships and stuff. And there was just a little blurb. And then I went to the supermarket with my mother one day and there was a paperback saying The Star Wars, you know, by George Lucas. So I bought that and read it and said, oh my gosh, this is going to be a movie. This is going to be amazing. Yeah. So, you know, I was there opening day, saw the movie and started buying whatever was available, including the Star Wars, the art of Star Wars, the Star Wars sketchbook by Joe Johnston. Mm. And so this was just maybe two or three months later, sometime that summer, I was off school and my mom came home and said, oh, I met a, a lovely lady at church today whose son worked on Star Wars. I said, oh, my gosh, wow. that's, what is, what's his name? She goes, well, her name is, you know, I forgot her first name, but it's Johnston. And I said, was it Joe Johnston? And she's like, Yes, that's right. Joseph, John, John, John. I said, Oh my God, I've got it. Like I've got his books. And, you know, so of course the next week I, you know, comb my hair and put on a tie. I went to church. I was, <laughs> was 14 or 15 and um, met her and said, you know, I'd really like to meet your son. She said, oh, I'm sure, you know, the confluence of events was, you know, part of it's just luck is I grew up in Van Nuys, which was where ILM was back in the original Star Wars days. It was probably about two miles or less from my house. Yeah. So she said, yeah, I'll give you my son's number. And Joe was living in the Valley and had started working on Galactica over at, at ILM. And so he gave me a tour and we just became friends. I just showed him some of my drawings and, and said, you know, I, I make models and I make little movies and I want to work on Star Wars kind of movies, you know, the kind of stuff you do. And he was yeah. very nice and, you know, looked at my stuff and said, well, yeah, continue drawing, you know, learn your life drawing skills and, and learn what, you know, what storyboards are and shots and movies and, you know, what makes, what, how do you tell a story visually? So that's mm -hmm. when I really started getting more into comic books because he said, you know, yeah. comic books are a good way to learn how to tell a story with pictures. And I'd always been a fan, but it just made me study them more as opposed to just buy them and go, oh, you know, what a cool yeah. story. And so I think that's my biggest break is I met Joe and then with his, and I would talk to him maybe once or twice a year, just call him on the phone. Cause I think that next year they all moved up. Cause I, I wanted to just sweep the floors and make coffee the following summer in yeah. 78, but they'd moved, just moved to San Francisco or the Bay area to Marin County. So I couldn't go in and intern. So after I graduated high school, I contacted him after going to UCLA for a semester as a, well, I wanted to be a film student, but they wouldn't even let you touch a camera until you were a junior. So I was like wow. two more years. I've been filming stuff since I was 10. Mm. So I called him up and said, Hey, is there a chance, you know, I could come up and be an intern at ILM, which is now in, in Marin County. 
And well, the part I'm leaving out is that summer. So the summer I graduated high school, I went up with some buddies and we took a tour. Joe gave us a tour of ILM on a Saturday. And I showed him, I brought up this creature I had made, a monster, a rubber monster kind of puppet, very similar to like what Jabba ended up being, but more demonic than alien. And I gave it to him. I said, well, you know, I don't know. I was an idiot. I was like, here's a present. I made it. It was just for a movie. But anyway, he was very uh, nice and accepted it. And then after a semester at UCLA, I called him and said, hey, you know, they want to let me touch a camera. Can I come up and, you know, literally make coffee, sweep the floors? And he said, well, who did you talk to? I said, I don't know what you mean. He said, well, I just put your name on a list for people to interview because George wants to set up the creature shop, not in London this time, but in Marin, so he can keep an eye on the creatures and be more involved. Again, this is before fax machines or anything. It was just, you know, mailing Polaroids to people. So he felt too divorced from the design process, I think, on, on Star Wars and even on Empire. So I went up and interviewed and, and I had been, you know, what they call it an autodidact. I taught myself how to make molds and mix rubber cement paint to paint latex. And I'd made, you know, just simple creatures, but I had kind of the basic grunt skills, if you were. It's like if you were into contracting work, it's like I knew how to use a saw and a hammer and use (laughs) nails and, you know, square up a joint. So I kind of knew how to do the grunt work that wasn't super exciting, but was an integral process of filmmaking, like being a plasterer or something on set. Yeah. And so I got the job because I was cheap. I was 80 bucks a day for a 12 hour day. So I don't know what that breaks down to hourly, but uh, so that was my big break, I guess, to roll that back to the moment where my mom met Joe Johnston's mom and said, Hey, and Joe was incredibly nice and, and, you know, kind and, kept in touch with me and didn't tell me to naff off. Uh, so yeah, I guess that would be my big break. But as they say, fortune favors the prepared. So I had spent a good five years of my life at that point, you know, making movies and monsters and stuff. So I kind of yeah. kind of knew it. Yeah. You know. And then you went on to work on the Star Trek franchise as well, right? Yeah, I did Gremlins in between Jedi. I did a little bit. So working at ILM, I got to work on Poltergeist, E.T., Star Trek's 2 and 3, yeah. and then did Gremlins with Chris Wayless and helped design that. I created their paint job. So I designed their color scheme and their paint job and then made their eyes and did some puppeteering. And then, yeah, after that came back, did some rock videos with David Fincher. I was a production designer. He was the director. We're both starting out. He was also at ILM the same time I was. We were the two youngest guys there. So came back and yeah, so I'd I'd gone back to UCLA to study computer animation because I knew it was going to take over the film business, even (laughs) in the early days at ILM, just seeing what it could do. And so uh, while I was at UCLA again at the animation department now, which let you touch a camera the first day, you know, you just had to animate something in it, but you could make a live action movie with animated characters in it. And that was considered, you know, especially if you're interested in special effects and much more uh, amenable to what I wanted to do. And Leonard Nimoy's office called from Star Trek IV and they said he was looking for an assistant to help him with the special effects and kind of the stuff, the technical stuff. He wasn't so well versed in being an actor and a performer. Yeah. And I was tailor-made for the job. I'd literally left ILM a year earlier. I knew everybody there. I'd worked on Star Trek's two and three. I'd been on set on three. I, I puppeteered the Klingon dog wow. under a, you know Krug's desk or under his chair there. It was, I was wedged under there with my arms <laughs> sticking out the side. So I met Leonard and we hit it off. And yeah, that was the other big break was, yeah. you know, I mean, having ILM on your resume at 19, 20 years old raises eyebrows. You know, people are like, oh, okay, <laughs> this guy must be decent. You know, must know what he's doing. So I think, again, I was just so well suited for the job. And Leonard and I hit it off. Like I said, it was like after a week, he was like my, you know, my favorite uncle that I didn't have till didn't meet till I was 21 or whatever I was 22. 
Yeah. So he started as his assistant and they want, he wanted to call me associate director, but the DGA wouldn't allow it because there is no associate director. You can have yeah. associate producer. So they said, well, how about it? Would you be all right with associate producer? I said, dude, you can call me chief dog washer. I don't care. <laughs> I'm just happy to be here. So I did a lot. He gave me tons of responsibilities, which was fantastic, particularly in the technical and design area where I just run it by him. He goes, no, it looks great. You know, do you like that? I'm like, yeah, yeah I think it'll be good. Because I was a Star Trek fan. I kind of knew the world. Yeah. I wasn't, you know, I couldn't quote, well, I could probably quote some lines, but I wasn't, I mean, I, you know, once you get into the world of Trek, you meet people who are basically walking encyclopedias and I'm good <laughs> friends with a few of them. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so we hit it off and then stayed friends until he passed away, which was lovely. It was both he and Jim Henson, I always said, were my two, you know, uncles. I, I firmly believe that the internship or the apprentice approach to, I mean, any skill really, but particularly filmmaking or any of the crafts is something that I think kind of went away when the, you know, the guilds <laughs> they went away. I mean, we had the Writers Guild, and the Directors Guild, but then there's yeah. some sort of apprenticeship program, but they were basically, yeah, the mentors that I had. And then there was Jerry Jewell, who was the writer for the Muppets who mentored me in writing. So just kind of being a amenable to working with people who knew what they were doing and, and sort of being a sponge absorbing it was really a helpful I guess personality trait. Mm. And in Star Trek 4 you did quite a few things being the associate producer and had a cameo as well. Yeah, well, that's what I was saying. Leonard let yeah. me do so much. So I, I got to uh, I got to write on the script. I wrote the questions in the beginning when Spock is in that room and the computer's throwing all those questions at him. I wrote the yeah. questions and that's my voice that we recorded to work with on set. And everyone thought, well, we'll just change it in post. And Leonard said, no, it's fine. Just, you know, make it sound more computery. So that's me saying, who said logic is meant of our civilization, which they guess is our guy. Correct. <laughs> Correct. That's all me. So I wrote the questions, I recorded the questions, I helped design some of the aliens in the, whatchamacallit, the like United Nations uh, set. Yeah. I just did a bunch of stuff. But yeah, and then I got the punk bit was in the script and Nick Meyer wrote the contemporary earth scenes. Uh, Nick mm -hmm. wrote those and Hart Bennett wrote all the stuff that took place in the year in the 23rd century. So Nick had this punk bit in the script and then we read it and it was hilarious. And I, I said to Leonard, I, I want to play the punk. I was in a punk band in high school and in college I was, you know, I had a short mohawk. I didn't have the one that I've sported in the movie, but yeah. I'd been letting my hair grow long. So uh, he said, all right, let me think about it. And a week later he said, okay, you can do it. So I just went all over, I went overboard and bleached my hair white and dyed it orange and shaved the sides and just came up with, a, I basically made the outfit or, you know, bought the outfit. I just went to the punk stores and I knew and, it was amazing and great. And then the song, I was just bopping my head to nothing because we're sound recording. We didn't want us loud music playing and they hadn't selected anything. So I'm just kind of doing a rhythm in my head of like, knowing kind of what angry punk music was. And <laughs> so we shot the film and they were going to put in some music and the music department said, well, you know, we can use this music by Duran Duran or I forgot who else, but more like new wave. It wasn't really punk. And I said, no, Leonard, it's got to be like the dead Kennedys or, you know, the, the Sex Pistols or the Toy Dolls, something angry and, and you know, and he said, well, what do you have in mind? I said, I'll write you a song. <laughs> and again, he's like, well, all right, you know, go ahead and let's hear what you got. So I, I went to the um, sound recording uh, guys, the, the mm -hmm. sound designer, Mark Mangini, who I'd worked with on Gremlins 1, land on Gremlins 2 later, but at that point, we'd become friends on Gremlins. So I went in and I came up with the lyrics and kind of a rhythm and Mark's a guitar player, a great musician. So he played the guitar and kind of turned it into, you know, the four angry chords. And we were 
recorded it in the sound editing facility on a crappy mic in the hallway. So it sounded like a garage (laughs) record of a garage band thing. And that's how I hate you was born. And the idea was to just kind of talk about what it was like to grow up under the threat of cold war and and just being, you know, when you're a kid and all this crap's handed to you and you're sort of frustrated and angry and powerless. So it's not necessarily, well, it's not really how I thought I was a happy kid. And, but I did all my trauma and anxiety came from nuclear war. I grew up near an airport and (laughs) planes were always flying overhead. And I read Hiroshima when I was like 10, I was kind of a precocious kid. And you know, I knew about the atomic bombs and obviously Godzilla was created by atomic energy. So I was curious about what it was. So I read Hiroshima and it was like, you know, 30 seconds over Tokyo or both. And I was like, oh my God. And I just had this, I couldn't sleep at night. And my mom, you know, tried to calm me down and tell me that, well, we have, we have bombers that are circling all the time, 24 hours a day. So, you know, if they even try something, we'll nuke them first. It didn't really (laughs) calm me down, but I kind of used that as the inspiration for what it was like to be living in the early 80s you know with still that threat kind of looming over your head so it, you know and there's a bit of silliness in it too which i always like the kind of mm. tongue-in-cheek cheekiness as you guys say over there of punk even in stuff like the sex pistols or the dead kennedys here where yeah. there's a political or social point of view but there's also kind of a like you know thumbing your nose at uh, the power structure so anyway that's how the song came about and i wrote it so right when i flip them off the song says screw you because i couldn't i couldn't i didn't say any lines as a punk so that timed out well again by design and yeah and it was just great and it's been it's been haunting me ever since <laughs> I mean, in a good way, in a good way. Yeah. So how did you first meet Jim Henson to start working on his projects? Well, because of Star Trek, actually, just kind of everything dominoed into another. When we were doing Trek, our producer, Ralph Winter, was involved with booking the effects companies and all that. And ILM, especially at this point, was getting very, very overwhelmed with a lot of projects. When we were doing Trek, they were doing, I think, Ghostbusters 2 and Howard the Duck. And so he wanted to know if there was spillover or, you know, ILM couldn't do all of it, that we could take it somewhere else. So we'd met with, he and I had met with some other effects companies. And there was a a gal named BJ Rack, Betty Jo Rack who worked at a company called Omnibus Able. And she was sort of their headhunter and helped get them work and, you know, and meet with clients. So she met with us and she and I hit it off and just became friends. And yeah. I started as Trek was winding down and we were in post-production. And I didn't have to, you know, it's basically go into editing with Leonard for a couple hours a day. I started working with her to help sell projects to potential clients as a commercial production designer. So I'd go in with her and would talk about how the computers could help create whatever effect they wanted in this commercial. And she and I became pals and I started showing her some stuff I was working on which was using puppets and computers to do a a sci-fi kid show. And she said, you know, who would really like this would be Jim Henson. I said, oh, yeah, he'd be great. You know, he'd just done Labyrinth. Obviously, he'd done Dark Crystal and Labyrinth. And obviously, he was a lot of the guys that had worked on Dark Crystal worked on um, both in London and in Marin County worked in the creature shop for uh, Jedi. So I'd heard stories about Jim and people who worked with him and, and, you know, how lovely he was and how the company was great. So I said, yeah, I'd love to meet him. So she set up this meeting. She was the go between. And I met Jim at the Bel Air Hotel on Sunday, wow. whatever, back in, I think this was 86. So I met Jim in the summer of 86 or the spring, whatever. He was out in LA for meetings and we just hit it off. And I showed him this show that I was at that time was called Astro Newts. He and I hit it off and he said, you know, I really like what you're doing here. Would you like to work with me? I said, yeah, I would love that. So I started working with him on a freelance basis in in Los Angeles. And uh, so between 86 and 87, I worked on a couple projects, just doing artwork and designs and 
I think I flew out to New York three or four times for meetings where he would gather the creative brain trust at Henson and we'd all have these, you know, two or three day kind of brainstorming sessions, which was great. And I'd never, never been with anyone who had done that. George Lucas didn't do that. He tended to be more closed and brainstorm only with, I guess, one or two people where Jim sort of liked this big convivial. Yeah. In, in New York, he had this beautiful cherry or mahogany, I think it was cherry wood table that was literally like 28 feet long and could seat wow. like 18 people. And so we'd all sit around it and they would bring in, you know, coffee and pastries and yeah. tea at four o'clock. He picked up some good habits from working in London on the <laughs> Muppet Show. And so they literally had like a little tea trolley or coffee thing and they'd have a break and so we just brainstormed shows so i would go back to la and draw and, and you know yeah. and then finally in late 87 he said would you like to come out and work on we, we, he'd sold a series to nbc called the jim henson hour and mm. invited me and to come move to new york and work on that full time and i said sure because i uh at that point, Trek was over and I hadn't, I was trying to remember what I'd done in that like year, year and a half, just probably this and that, but nothing yeah. major had come about. So Leonard wasn't doing anything that he was doing. I think the good mother, or he did three men and a baby, but there wasn't really a role for me in that. So yeah, went, moved to New York and started working on the Jim Henson hour as, as what I said, like an idea slash gag guy I'd come up with fun ideas for puppets or sketches and Jim and I went, so I just brainstormed with Jim Henson. That was my job and then go <laughs> off and draw. So, you know, I didn't realize too young and too new in the business to realize how spoiled I was, mm. particularly by the way he, he collaborated with creatives. Uh, it's very rare. I've tried to be yeah. carry on that tradition of working with people, not having them work for you. You know, yeah. it's like you hire good people and let them do their job and then support them and inspire them. You don't tell them, no, that's bad. And don't, you're doing it wrong. Or, you know, and, and that's yeah. part of it's, it's like when they say as a director, you know, a good movie is 50 to 70% of it's just good casting. You cast the right people and then let them do their job and they make it come alive. Well, it's the same thing with working with production designers or artists is you find people's work you like and you let them do their work and just sort of inspire them. So mm. It was amazing, you know, just yeah. working with him and, and making cool stuff. And all the way up to uh, we started on Dinosaurs right before he passed away. I'd done uh, two rounds of sketches. and Or I was sorry, one round of sketches and I was, came to meet with him. So I moved back to L.A. I worked on RoboCop two for a bit and then i worked at disney imagineering and he wanted to uh, they were moving office they'd moved offices to la so I'd, I'd seen him when he was out in los angeles and and disney was going to buy the company so mm -hmm. he was setting up shop to be a part of disney so i was involved in meetings with that and, and dinosaurs was one of the first things so yeah. we were working on that sadly when he he passed away and then dinosaurs happened and then became a producer writer on that yeah i guess when dinosaurs started was it assumed that jim would be leading the this thing and then when he passed away you're kind of left in your own sadly no he didn't really make it to that point we had yeah. just i mean it was an internal project and when he passed disney which was still buying the company said yeah. well what were you guys you know what was happening and so dinosaurs was this tv show idea and so they hooked me and alex rockwell who was jim's assistant at the time and yeah. kind of moving into she ultimately became the head of development for years at henson and we met with this producer, writing producer, and his partner, uh, Michael Jacobs and Bob Young, mm. who had a deal with ABC. And we pitched to them and they kind of dug it. And we showed them, you know, what the Creature Shop had been doing, mainly with the Ninja Turtle movies, you yeah. know, these completely autonomous. They didn't have cables on them anymore, which was amazing for the time. You know, they could walk around. You didn't have to be hiding 24 cables coming out of the back of their head or the bottom of their suit. Yeah. So we showed them that and said, you know, and then I started designing and they started writing and we kind of all collaborated and created 
dinosaurs, but Jim was not, sadly, not involved in any of that, except just a few brainstorm sessions he and I and Alex had. So, yeah. so Brian, you know, the whole thing after Jim passed was, well, what's going to happen with the company? Is Disney going to absorb it? And, you know, and then, you know, the, is Lisa going to take over? Is Brian going to take yeah. over? And so Brian became the head of the company and, and was very involved, obviously, from the get-go with everything, but also particularly with dinosaurs and was a producer on it and directed some episodes and yeah, but yeah, sadly, Jim really never got to see it come to anything other than he and I talking about it and me doing some sketches. Yeah. And then Muppets Tonight came soon after. What type of work did you do on that? Because I take it you couldn't design fancy dinosaur characters anymore. Did you get to <laughs> design some of the Muppets and the new ones maybe? Yeah, a little less designing, Yeah, but some designing, but a lot more writing. I, I was really helped create the show. So starting with the brainstorming of what the show is and what are the characters and then kind of working with designers more like how Jim did with me is working with designers and we have this idea like Seymour yeah. and Pepe was an elephant <laughs> and I think he's originally an elephant and a mouse and then one of our puppet designers did this hilarious sketch or mock-up of this shrimp because what about jumbo and shrimp <laughs> and it was hilarious and and then Bill Beretta who was one of the newer puppeteers he was the suit performer for Earl on dinosaurs so yeah. he you know was a, a seen but never heard well he was neither seen or heard but his, his <laughs> movements were seen and he started getting into puppeteering on a Treasure Island, Muppet Treasure Island, yeah. which I co-wrote with Jerry before Muppets Tonight. But at that point, yeah, so I, I kind of moved into, I'd been directing little shorts, but mainly was a writer. So yeah, Muppets Tonight was a writing producer and uh, working with the talent. You know, I worked really closely with Garth Brooks, who was hilarious, and Prince. So yeah, I kind of just kept moving up the ladder in that way. And it was great. We won an Emmy for it. So that was oh, yeah. nice. I'm the only, only Emmy I've ever won. <laughs> <laughs> and then Muppets from Space came along. Was that still kind of writing stuff for that? It came about, I had written a movie called Muppets in Space, which was very different. It was more like a galaxy quest meets Spaceballs, where Muppets <laughs> from Space, they actually took my title because Jerry wrote the first drafts of what became Muppets from Space, and it was called Star Gonzos, and it was a much smaller movie. Yeah. And they wanted to make it bigger and more epic. So uh, they brought in a bunch of writers. So I did a, I think I did a punch up pass on it. And then they went to North Carolina, Wilmington, yeah. to Dino De Laurentiis' uh, studio, which is funny because I'd been there when the place was being built and working on a movie called Cat's Eye. I storyboarded the whole thing. So I was back in Wilmington hmm. and there were even a couple people there who had worked with me on, on that. And so I went out to do punch up. And then while I was there, they said, you know, we're, we're getting behind the director was a lovely guy, but he was new to Muppets, which was a, it's a bit of a laborious process. You know, it's not yeah. like, okay, everyone stand here and look this way, say your lines. There's so much that goes on under camera. So they said, you know, we, we would like you to do second unit directing. I said, okay, great. So I got my director skilled union card and started doing, I did about two to three weeks of second unit elements and, and did punch up. So I was kind of doing punch up and, and second unit directing. And I think I get credit as a second unit director. I don't remember. Yeah. But that, that movie had, I think, 18 writers work on it. So it was a bit of a mess. The process was a bit messy. It was not as tightly run as Christmas Carol or, or yeah. Treasure Island. But it was a new director, a new producers. Every well, Brian and and Martin Baker were off in London trying to get. He was going to do this big epic talking animal movie, and so he was off doing that. So it was kind of a bunch of people who hadn't really done 
just size them up a project before. So it got a little unruly. So I was there just trying to help out. It was great. I got my director's guild card and, and that got me in the DGA. And I think, I think two or three of my jokes are in there. I know one of them was the yeah. uh, smack you like a bad, bad donkey. Oh, yeah. my, well, I love writing for Pepe because he's a little jerk. And I, I had said from the beginning, when I started writing with the Muppets, even like in the late eighties, early nineties, when I was writing gags and stuff, I said, you know, we need our Daffy Duck. Yeah. We need someone who's a jerk because at that point, everybody loved each other. And, you know, I mean, Piggy was probably the biggest jerk, hmm. but nobody else was. Everyone else was sweet and meek and cute or weird, but nobody was kind of a selfish jerk. So I'm like, yeah. we need somebody like that because they're hilarious. And Bill kind of came along and, and he had done Clueless Morgan in Treasure Island, which was just, you know, a big stupid goat. <laughs> yeah. And so he and I just hit it off like he got the kind of stuff that I thought was funny. And when we were creating Pepe for Muppets Tonight, he uh, was basing it on an ant he had gained through marriage, a Spanish aunt who would finish her sentences with, okay, okay. So she would say like, are we going uh, going to the market? Okay. So he kind of turned that into this, this character of Pepe who doesn't want to be a Muppet. In other words, he's not like, oh, great. I'm part of the team. He's like, yeah, yeah, the muffins, they're annoying. Um, <laughs> Yeah. It's a funny mindset to play against, you know, all the good yeah. nature because Rizzo had sort of been like that, but not even as big of a jerk as Pepe can be. Yeah. And I, I think for me as a writer, not as a fan, but as a creator, you need somebody. The Muppets aren't out, you know, solving crimes or fighting bad guys yeah. or solving diseases. They're just kind of a, a band of, you know, misfits. But to have one or two of them that are somewhat pushing against, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it basically mirrors society. There's always somebody who's trying to push a hole in the boat, you know, because they think whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so it was great to really have fun. I, so I wrote a bunch of Pepe lines and then was trying to keep him. And then Bobo came out too. Uh, yeah. Bobo the bear was, but Pepe and Bobo really got a lot of good screen time in um, Muppets from Space, even though I think yeah. Pepe's was cut down a bit. But yeah. so yeah, so that was Muppets from Space. And then I, yeah. because I'd been directing and did second unit on that, they collared me for the um, Very Merry Muppet Christmas movie, oh, yeah. uh, which was done in 2001, 2002. So it wasn't much longer. It was a year and a half later. We started working on that and got to direct that up in Canada, which is one of the three movies I've done with the Henson Company, two Muppet movies, and then a, uh, another one, Turkey Hollow, which was a Thanksgiving special. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Is there anything unique about directing for the Muppets that makes things harder? Well, there's a lot of things that is unique about it. First of all, you can't show anyone below the waist unless you want to spend a lot of money and a lot of time. So. Yeah. And, and what's funny is most people don't think about it, but also if the Muppets were actually standing on the floor, they'd be talking to your knees. I mean, yeah. Kermit's only about 24 inches tall, so yeah. they float around people's shoulder height mm. and you watch it and it seems totally acceptable. But, yeah. you know, just like in the Muppet show, like Kermit would float somewhere between your you know, bottom of your ribs to your shoulders. And that seemed absolutely logical and you totally accept it. But if you yeah. actually, <laughs> if you put Kermit's feet on the ground, yeah, you'd be talking to your knees. I think Fozzie would be talking to your crotch because he's one of the tallest ones, Fozzie and maybe yeah. Sam Eagle. So there's a lot of disbelief. But what's funny is you meet with people who kind of approach these things very logically and you say, you've got to, you've got to throw your logical brain out the door or else you'll never <laughs> succeed with them because they don't play and I just mean the directing of it. You're, you're basically yeah. fighting physics. And, and half of the physics, just from the get-go, is hiding the very long. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Large human beings under the very tiny puppets. Yeah. And making it look like they're just in our world, whether you're, I mean, the hardest is if they're in the real world or walking down a New York street or something, there's a lot of jiggery pokery to make sure that looks totally normal, even though you've got <laughs> sometimes a 10 or 12 foot wooden sled with six people on it and four monitors and cables, <laughs> you know, just to have four Muppets walking down the street with it. And if you want to walking down with a person, oh yeah, yeah, then you got to build this big U-shaped thing and have the person in the middle of it. Yeah. And it's just, it's a circus. And then when we, you know, when we're on a set, then the actors are usually, you know, 40 inches off the floor. So there's yeah. and the, where the puppets are, there's these big gaps. You have to make sure that nobody falls and breaks their neck or their legs. And oh, yeah. And there's all these monitors so the puppeteers can see what they're doing. So all the sets have to be built specially with a lot of accommodations for that. It's funny because being a puppet director, I've, I've noticed that people just think I do like, you know, Sesame, not Sesame Street, but, you know, kid shows where it's just a guy, you know, Kukla, Fran and Ollie, yeah. or, uh, I don't know, very simple stuff. And it's super complicated. I said, no, no, it's like shooting the Cantina sequence in Star Wars or Jabba's yeah. Palace or, you know, the Mandalorian. It, there's all this stuff going on that you don't want people to see. And so you can't just go in and block it. You know, I did a regular sitcom two years ago that I don't know if it ever made it to the UK. It was called um, The Kids Are All Right. Mm. And it was a very handheld kind of real like you are there sort of show with, with handheld cameras. We usually shot with two or three cameras. And they had told me the producers were friends. And I said, you know, we're just not making our days. We, we've got whatever it is, 60 hours, five, 12 hour days. And we're not, we're, we're always going over schedule. And I'm like, okay, I, I get it. What's, what's the trick? And they go, well, you know, these camera angles and all the, the kind of the rules of how they wanted to shoot it. You can't do something which we call a swingle, which is like, if you and I are talking, yeah. instead of shooting over my shoulder to you and over your shoulder to me, which is yeah. two different setups, sometimes you'll just shoot as if the camera's a third party and I'll pan to you and you say your line and I'll pan to me and I'll say my line and shoot right. a couple of ways. Yeah. They don't do that. They didn't, we don't do swingles. Every shot's pretty much has to be a dirty over. And so it's just, it's a great look, but it's a lot more work. Yeah. So I did an episode and I did it in, in, 
instead of 60 hours, I did it in 56 hours. It was four hours. I did it four hours less than they had scheduled. You know, what was funny was ultimately I got criticized for, well, you didn't do enough coverage. And that's baloney. The show cut together fine. So shooting real people in the real world, even if it's got a lot of rules, is a hell of a lot easier and faster than shooting puppets. So I, I kind of have a reputation for being fast. And it's only because I've done it so much, you kind of know where the pitfalls are. And it, it's funny what becomes second nature to you, because most of our puppeteers are right-handed. In other words, they're yeah. the puppet's mouth and body's being held up by the puppeteer's right hand. So I'm just working, I was working on a project recently where a puppet has to run around a person. Mm. And the storyboard yeah. artist I was working with drew them going to the person's camera right side. And I said, well, that won't work. And he's like, why? And I said, because there's a puppeteer in between the puppet and the person. If you want the puppet running around someone's legs, you know, like with a piece of rope to tie him up, you'd have to be going clockwise, not counterclockwise. Uh. And he's like, oh, right. And it's funny because I didn't even think about it. I just naturally said, oh, no, that's wrong. <laughs> so after, again, doing it for whatever, 30 years or so, you you sort of get the second nature it's just like shooting wildlife or any other specific you know shooting uh, sports you know you kind of know the angles that work best just because you've done it so much so same thing with puppets so it everything is hard with puppets there's you know there's no easy shots unless it's just two puppets talking standing and that's easy pretty much anything else and you know they can't reach for a light switch and turn it on they can't they can't pick up a fork and eat you know everything they do that involves a prop or something unless they have live hands that we call it like the Swedish yeah. chef or a Bunsen honeydew or beaker, like they can do it. But then the problem is they can't hold anything over their head because you see the human arm attached to their <laughs> arm. Yeah. So just nothing's easy, but you have to make it look like that's, you know, it, Oh yeah, of course, of course you cut to someone picking up the phone yeah, <laughs> or a cut to a different angle. You know, they put their hand on the phone and then you cut to a close up. you know, so, or <laughs> over the shoulder. So you just have to be an editor in some, I mean, not, not that most directors don't have some idea of how they'll edit it, but you really have to be very specific. So in some ways, almost every shot's a special effect in, in yeah. terms of you're hiding something. Whereas when you're with actors in, a, in the real world or on a set, you know, you can pretty much pick a good angle for whatever it is and, and nothing's going to screw you up the way that it will with puppets. So yeah, everything is hard, <laughs> harder with puppets, I would say. Yeah. And although you didn't direct them, have you been involved in the more recent movies in any way? Not at all. Mm. You know, you're never a prophet in your own town. And the, the word was, oh, the Muppets weren't successful because of the people who were doing it. So they hired complete neophytes or not neophytes, but people who never did the Muppets before. And they did the TV series and they did the two movies. And, you know, I won't comment on what I thought of them, but I, I think we've done better. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I just watched it and said, well, it kind of shows that these people don't know the Muppets that well. You know, the Jason Siegel one, I will say that it was a Jason Siegel movie where he got to play with the Muppets, which was basically what yeah. that was his wet dream is like, oh, I want to <laughs> do a movie where, you know, I starred it. And then there's other Muppets that, you know, I get to play with them, which is yeah. what, what it was. And, you know, and he'd also been dissing everything I'd done, not me personally, but saying, mm. oh, Muppets hadn't done anything good since Jim passed away. Mm. And I was like, really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, if we had $60 million, we'd do better stuff too. I mean, you know, <laughs> the, the budgets on those things were big movie budgets mm. where we were working with TV movie budgets. But so I wouldn't say I'm bitter, but I do think that the, um, 
um, criticisms for what we'd been doing after Jim had passed for the budget and schedules that we were on. I, I still would stand by it. Well, mm. except for Muppets Wizard of Oz, where I didn't get to cast. The casting was forced upon me and I couldn't do anything about it. So yeah. it is, it's interesting because essentially all I've done is franchise things. Yeah. I never really got to make my own show. The closest thing to my own show would be the Christine McConnell series, uh, The Curious Creations of Christine McConnell, where yeah. I worked with this, it's a Netflix series and, and I created that with and for Christine. She was, you know, an amazing talent, creative person and a model, but she hadn't been an actress and she hadn't written anything. She had amazing ideas. So I worked with her to create the show around her and so again for her. Mm. But the sensibilities in that, the humor and all that is tends to be a lot closer. Well, that and Muppet Treasure Island, the silliness and the weirdness of Muppet Treasure Island is definitely where I would take the Muppets if somebody said, Hey, what do you want to do with the Muppets? I'd be like, yeah. you know, that that kind of story with that kind of silliness. I think they do really well in a genre or a franchise. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, you just say James Bond Muppet movie, everyone laughs. Say, you know, Muppet Western, everyone laughs. Say a Muppet, you know, space opera, which is what I've written, and or a Muppet, you know, haunted haunted house movie, a Muppet Ghostbusters. Yeah. Like all those things engender a smile and a laugh because you're like, oh, I get it. I've been talking to Disney about doing a number of genre pictures with the Muppets, and they just kind of nod and smile, and then they do Muppets Now, which is... Hmm what you can do for a, a smaller budget and schedule. Yeah. Well, you directed, was it half of Muppets now? A good bit of it anyway. Yeah, about half of them, yeah. yeah. They re-edited them, so I don't know in yeah. terms of screen time. I know there was like six episodes and I directed three of the, like not episodes, but the segments, I would yeah. say. I did Miss Piggy's Lifestyle, I did Bunsen and Beaker's Science Show, and I did yeah. Peppy's Game Show. So yeah. those are the three segments I directed I think we had a week to do all of them, or I think I did a half an hour's worth of entertainment a day. We worked really fast, but they were all kind of bottle shows. You know, the game show was the same set and it's just different guests. And so it was fun. I, I think the thing I feel happiest about was the game show because it was freewheeling yeah. and, and Bill and I work well together, even though we drive each other crazy sometimes, but <laughs> it's a creative collaboration. You know, it, it's fun. It's work, but it's fun. And Bill's just hilarious when he's freewheeling and, you know, just being on set and live and, because it was this loose game show, we could kind of play with it. You know, we had the screaming goat, which is now a character that I want to use in everything I do. Because if you've seen it, there's this goat that screams in it. Because oh, yeah. you know there are there are screaming goats, so. <laughs> I'm like, let's put the screaming goat in here. So yeah. hoping that's becoming a, a regular character to some degree. And yeah. Joe, Joe, the legal weasel came oh, out of, of our, uh, it was originally just, he was going to do one thing of like, don't try this at home. I think it was on Pepe's game show, mm. or it was just in an opening with Kermit. And he was yeah. so funny. And again, that collaboration with Peter Linz, who is just a weasel. And we just wanted to be kind of a button down lawyer. And we started and literally, I mean, he came on set. And we just like kind of played around. It was like, so he started out like doing a New York lawyer. Like, yeah, that's, yeah, that's not. <laughs> and then he just started riffing, you know, and Peter's an amazing puppeteer. He did Walter. Yeah. And uh, he does, um, uh, who does he do now? He does Walter, er but. Uh, yeah. He does Ernie on Sesame Street now and Harry Monster. Yeah, he does a yeah. lot on Sesame, but with the Muppets, we're still kind of finding mm. his, um, oh God, who else does he do? I'm blanking. Anyway, yeah. he just came up with this hilarious, super buttoned down guy with like no sense of humor who thought he was hilarious. So that wasn't mm. in the script at all. It was just like uh, Kermit the Frog says, you should, you know, don't try any of this at home and, and under no circumstances. So yeah. he did it with very serious and then just made a bad pun and then oh, oh, oh. <laughs> and and it was like we're all cracking up and going that's the character and so a, a new muppet is born you know mm. and that's the fun of it it's such a collaboration between 
I mean, look, any TV series is a collaboration or any movie is a collaboration between the writer and the performer because the writer sets the blueprint and the performer brings it to life. And yeah, with the Muppets, the performers, because we don't we can't go out and cast. We don't have a cast of thousands of people or hundreds of thousands of people in L.A. to go choose from. We have yeah. a smaller pool of talent, so they're much more involved in creating it than just saying, OK, that's not what I envisioned. You know, who's next on the on the call on the casting sheet? So that's, you know, just even out of every project, you usually find one or two new characters that come out of the, <laughs> the desperation of, oh, this isn't funny. Let's how can we make it funnier? Yeah. You know, a lot of the fun is the creation in the moment whether it's you know riffing off a moment in the script or you know creating a character like that where the script just says you know a pig walks into the room i mean that's how miss piggy was born i don't know if you know that story oh, yeah. but yeah frank just was a pig with a wig on and in a chorus line of pigs and kermit walked by and, and piggy turned to the next pig and said i know him you know and then suddenly with, with you know this this spin on the word no i know him and everyone cracked up and suddenly this character was born so that improvisational aspect of the Muppet play. Again, I think the beginning, the end of the day, when you're working with the Muppets, it's work. And again, there's all this technical stuff you have to keep in mind. But if you're not having some sense of play and improvisation with the ridiculousness of the premise, I think you're doing it wrong. And I think that kind of came through in some of the more recent stuff where, you know, serious comedy writers were writing for them and uh, it became a little stilted. Yeah. And what's this director pseudonym that you're using Rufus Scott Church. Okay, well, what's my name? You should know this. You're a, you're a Scotsman. So what's my name? Kirk Thatcher. And if that was a profession in Scotland, what would they do? <laughs> they would, uh, well, they would kind of roof. fix up a roof of a church, probably. Uh huh. And so, what kind of church would it be if it was in Scotland? <laughs> the, the roof of Scott Church. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. That's where I came up with it. Because yeah. again, my Scottish heritage, it's, I don't know if that's why my name is Kirk or not, but because uh, for years it had been a different one. And then I was like, well, I want to, f- I've always thought that would be a great pseudonym because what yeah. would a Kirk Thatcher do? He'd Rufus Scott Church. So yeah. Yeah, I couldn't make it Rufus Scottish Church because uh, so I played with Scott Church. I've heard Scott used as a, yeah. as, a ter- as an adjective for anything from Scotland. So hmm. Yeah, so that is how it came out. So everyone in Scotland should be <laughs> aware that I'm proud of my heritage. Yeah, but what's the reasoning to not using your real name? Uh, well, the reasoning is Disney won't make it they'd go non-union, which shocks me. Yeah. They they do these jobs that are non-union in LA and I can't take my name on it, which is why Christine McConnell, I just get executive producer when I wrote three quarters of the episodes. Wow. I wrote four out of the six episodes and I directed all of them, but I just get executive producer credit. Hmm. And that's the problem in Hollywood and streaming services are making it worse. Yeah. So I've got to, that's the good fight we have to get into besides Amazon workers. We have to get, you know, not to get political, but the streaming services and with the writers and directors guild, they're said it's new media. It's been new media for 20 years now. And, yeah. and we have to get back to, cause it's killing the industry or it's killing jobs hmm. or careers, I guess. But yeah, that's why I had to. Yeah. And you've also directed lots of shorts and viral videos right. and things, including All the, yeah. Bohemian Rhapsody, the big video. Yes. That- people know yeah a lot of people don't know that we queen actually gave us their music tracks yeah their backing vocals all the is is, is the actual queen tracks and the guitar stuff is all brian may and and, and uh because you know it's an incredibly dense song there's no way we could have recreated it so they were tickled pink to have us yeah. you know do it so they said yeah you can use all our tracks so wow. that's one of the reasons it sounds so great is it's actually queen's playing yeah we just ruined the beautiful vocals yeah <laughs> 
Interestingly, that was actually the first 1080p video on YouTube. I don't know if you know. No, I didn't know that. Mm. Well, there you wow. go. Wow. So there we go. I'll be in a museum piece someday. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. Well, very cool. Yeah. So your, your web... What's the name of your uh, podcast? Well, the radio show is the, the radio show, show, and we're on Shout Radio. Okay. And do you only talk about mob stuff, or you just talk about entertainment in general? Or? Well, we talk about a range of stuff. We have all sorts of guests on, like musicians and authors, and had a few Muppets people on. Yeah, you said that. Yeah, and anybody that wants to come on, you know. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll spread the word. Yeah. And have you ever tried any puppetry yourself? Or are you mainly behind the scenes? Yeah. No, I did puppetry in Gremlins 1 and 2, yeah. uh, if you call that. It's more special <laughs> effects puppetry. I have not done Muppet-style puppetry, only because there's so many really talented people who are good friends of mine. I mean, for my own project, I have this Kickstarter thing I'm working on, which is a oh. demented kid show. If, if I said it was peewee. Pee-wee's Playhouse was done by Monty Python hmm. and wasn't for kids, but seemed like a, it looked like a kid's show. It's called yeah. Captain Randy's Submarine. So I'll yeah. probably be doing some characters in that. It's completely mental. And it originally it was going to be like Benny Hill and Monty Python did it. But with the current climate, you can't have girls in bikinis running around. So yeah. it's uh, it's still silly and, and irreverent and ridiculous <laughs> in the way that Python or, you know, the young ones, Blackadder, just a huge fan of British comedy, much more than, I mean, I like American comedy too. Yeah. But British humor and particularly those kind of more outrageous shows just growing up. That's the reason Billy Connolly's in Treasure Island, Muppet Treasure Island, is because I was a huge Billy yeah. Connolly fan. And I discovered him on a Lakers airline flight <laughs> to London when I was 14. My family wanted to go and see, you know, some of our roots and stuff in, in the UK and in France and, well, mainly the UK for roots. But yeah. we went to a, kind of did a European tour. And on Lakers Airlines, there was a comedy channel and there was this mad Scotsman doing jokes about wee jobbies and, you know, <laughs> And I'm like, who is this guy? He's hilarious. And he's, you know, just the the accent was great. And I just kind of fell in love with it. And back then, no internet, you'd go to the record store and say, do you have anything by Billy Connell in comedy? They go, no. And so uh, I had gone to school with some guys from the UK high school. There was exchange students. And so they turned me on to the goons, which I had heard of again through Python, the goon show. And one of them got me, I think, a cassette tape of a Billy Connolly stuff. And again, this was before this is before 19, it was like 1979. And so when we were doing this and there was a character in it called Billy Bones, I said, oh, we got to have it be Billy Connolly (laughs) if he'll do it. And I wrote it for him. In other words, that whole Jimmy, Jimmy, Jim, Jim. Jim, Jim, Jim. Yeah. Well, that was for Billy. And, you know, knowing that Jimmy is sort of like your guy's version of calling someone buddy, mm. you know, hey, Jimmy, hey, sunny Jim. And so, <laughs> well, what was funny was in the read throughs before, you know, we ever cast it and we would read it through and I would read Billy Bones and, and sometimes even Long John Silver because the Muppet performers would read their characters, but you needed someone to read the human characters. So mm. I always read Billy Bones as Billy Connolly with my, you know, semi okay version of you know hey jim beware the black spot you know and what was funny was when we cast him and he came and did the cast read through in london you know a week before we were shooting one of the puppeteers came up to me said that's amazing it sounds just like you (laughs) (laughs) i said does it the same way you did i said no i was 
because he wasn't familiar with Billy's stand-up. I mean, I think, you know, being in London, he might have heard of him, but uh, he was one of the younger puppeteers who was not on The Muppet Show. So yeah. anyway, that was huge. And Billy and I were still friends. We email once in a while. But after that, I worked with him for a few months when he was in L.A. on a sitcom I wanted to build around him and had a great time. We'd just hang out and he'd tell stories and we'd drink coffee and maybe talk about the show for 15 minutes and just hear him tell stories for 45 minutes. That was amazing. Yeah. And lovely, lovely guy. And so, so saddened to see, you know, these basically stopped and, and, mm. uh, but he and Pamela have always been very sweet to me whenever he was in town. I'd always go see him and they'd get me backstage and say hi and, you know, have a Diet Coke. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I've always had a big soft spot in my heart for Scotland and Scots and Scottish humor. And yeah. again, it comes from my mom on my mom's side of the family. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So again, I'm serious. I will come visit. <laughs> yes. In a few years <laughs> when the virus is over. Oh, Jesus, I know. Yeah. yeah. The Scots will kill it, won't it? Just, can't we just drink good enough good whiskey so you know, it just kills the germs? <laughs> Maybe. I so. don't know. <laughs> Not until the pubs are open again. I know. Yeah. 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 Bugger. Yeah. <laughs> Now, Kevin Feige, he found you a bit of an inspiration, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> You've obviously listened to other podcasts I've been on. Yeah, uh, yeah I was at Comic-Con with my buddy, who's the composer, Michael Cicchino, because he did the score for Wiz Muppets Wizard of Oz, and we became good friends, and he does a bunch of Marvel stuff. And he said, hey, so we were at Comic-Con, as one does, if you've yeah. got, been going for centuries. <laughs> and he said, hey, Marvel's having a party or an after party. Do you want to go? Oh, I said, sure. I said, yeah, I love what they're doing. So we went and, and it was Michael Giacchino, David Silverman, who I've known since college, who was an animator, kind of created The Simpsons as a cartoon. He, he didn't create it, Matt Groening did, but he turned Matt Groening's drawings into moving characters along with Bill Kopp and a couple Wes Archer. But so he introduces us, this is David Silverman from The Simpsons. Everyone's like, hey, Dave, there's like 25 people in a lovely restaurant who already had a few drinks and had dinner. So, and this was literally like 1130 at night or midnight on a Saturday night. And then he goes, and this is Kirk Thatcher from He Works With The Muppets. I was like, hey, Kirk. And Kevin Feige walks up to me with his hand down. He says, wait, are you the Kirk Thatcher? <laughs> and, and I looked to Michael because I think, okay, you're having me on, right? Like, and, he, and I go, he goes, the one from Star Trek Four who played the punk and wrote the song. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I shake his hand. He goes, ah, oh, it's so great to meet you. And I'm like, this is Kevin freaking Feige. Yeah. He said, you're the reason I wanted to be a producer. He said, I saw Star Trek four and I was 15 and I saw your name in the credits as the punk on the bus and you wrote and sang a song and you're associate producer. And he said, I want to be a producer, man. You look at all the cool stuff you get to do. Yeah. I said, that's hilarious and amazing. And, and we've been friends ever since. In fact, I saw him on a, I was on a Zoom call with him a couple of weeks ago, and oh, wow. uh, he's an amazing guy, and he's a huge Star Trek fan to levels that I do not even ascribe to. He's got an amazing collection of Star Trek memorabilia, and he's the reason I'm in Spider-Man Far From Home. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that came out in a meeting. I was meeting with Marvel to discuss a project I wanted to do with them, and, and we were discussing. It didn't pan out, but I was there having a meeting, and he was running late, and he kind of burst in, and he said, hi, sorry I'm late. I got a, you know, my car got a flat, and I had a thing, and I'm flying to New York tonight. And so I can't really hang out, but I just wanted to say hi. And I said, oh, you're going to New York? I said, I'm going to New York. on This is a Wednesday. I said, I'm going to New York on Friday. He goes, wait, seriously? I said, yeah. I said, I'm going to be there through the weekend. I'm doing a thing. And and he said, um, well, we should put you in the movie. I said, what, what movie? He's like, and, and his producers there I was meeting with were working, obviously, on Spider-Man at that point. And he said, we'll, we'll, we'll put you on the street with, a, with as a punk. You can, you can have the boombox and be listening to I Hate You. And, and I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll figure it out. I'll, I'll have our producer 
producer call you? And he like left the meeting. I'm like, was he serious? And they're like, yeah, probably. You're going to be in New York. So anyway, long story short, I changed my flight to get there at like two in the morning. And I was on set at five in the morning. So I basically went to my hotel room and changed and went to set and got into hair and makeup and played, you know, the washed out hippie version of, or bum, you know, homeless guy version of the punk from, you know, the ideas that he, he, he still walked around that boom box and mm. he had a bad time with aliens. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I have this little cameo there where I have one line and it's not even on camera. We just go, oh. eh, not bad. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's pretty funny. But the, the Star Trek fans erupted when they heard that. And Kevin, the reason, you know, it could just be homeless guy. I actually didn't even deserve credit. Essentially, yeah. I'm barely in the movie. But Kevin wanted me to be punk on street. And <laughs> so uh, that's what made people go, oh, my God, it's the same universe. Star Trek and Marvel live in the same universe. <laughs> so oh, yeah. that was a, it was a bigger deal for fans than I had imagined it would be. But it's been fun. Mm. And you have also recently started offering script consultations for people as well. Yeah, I have a website where you can get autographed photos. It's a little more expensive to send them to the UK just because shipping yeah. costs. But so photographs and yeah, I do a consulting on scripts or stories. I think it's either a half hour, an hour. And if you want me to read your screenplay, it's a little more, you know, because that's, I don't do it casually. I read it and try and yeah. come up with a cogent response as opposed to, yeah, I read it. <laughs> so yeah, thank you for mentioning that. And probably that's where you'll find out about Captain Randy too. I'll be promoting that there once the Kickstarter launches, which it was supposed to launch last November, but between the COVID surge and I had some family stuff happen that was mm. not good. And then work, this, there's a Muppet job I'm working on right now. So between Ooh. all those things, it just, and the election was kind of tearing our country apart. So it seemed like a bad time to do it. And then now, and I started working in January on this, uh, on a month of project. So Ooh. maybe by the end of the summer, uh, come back and, yeah. and I'll let you know. And you can tell all your millions of <laughs> listeners yes. who are rich, all your millions of rich Scottish listeners. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all the banks are right. And that's, you guys are all rich. Yeah. Well, <laughs> is there anything you're working on at the moment that you're allowed to talk about? Sadly, no. Uh, yeah. That's the thing. This yeah. thing I'm working on with the Muppets did a thing for Disney Channel. Just small little bits. The Kickstarter is the only thing I talk about because I own it. I'm trying to think. It was a did you know the last thing I worked on that's out there is Muppets Now, which we talked about yeah. um, last year. We're just not a lot. Nothing really happened. So. A friend of mine told me he sold a show to Netflix that he wanted me to be a writer on, but I can't talk about it because it hasn't even started. So I don't know. There's things brewing, but it's this weird thing about this business is, you know, two years after I'm done with something, I can talk about it. Like when Christine McConnell came out, it had been wrapped for me for six months and we hadn't, you know, it was a year and a half since we'd shot it, but yeah. it came out and everyone's talking about it. And I was like, oh, I'm, I've moved on. So it is, it's a weird thing about this industry. Yeah. So yeah, sadly, no, but mm. I do want to come visit Scotland and do, do you have any production? Is it like Ireland where you can live there and get a government grant to do something? I don't know. And we'll find out. Damn it, Toby. <laughs> The only films that are made here are weird history ones that nobody watches. Yeah. Oh, it was the guy who did Gregory's Girl and uh, oh, yeah. the Ice Cream Wars. Uh, he was great. And there's a lot, the, you know, we see a lot of Irish, smaller, like, you know, local hero and uh, the grabbers and stuff like that out of Ireland. So Scotland, get on the ball. Start making Scott. What was the Sean Connery ad? This is Billy Connolly used to make Scotland for the Scotch. Uh I guess it was a Scottish national commercial back in the 80s or 90s that Billy would joke about. But yeah, get on it. Get yeah. the government to, you know, come over there and we'll do Scottish puppet movies. How about yeah. that? There's a niche market. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, kilts are much easier to work with a puppet than legs. You just you know, have a kilt there. You can hide a lot more puppeteer underneath <laughs> the kilt. <laughs> yeah, you probably can. <laughs> 
Yeah, so you fit it on the puppet and then yeah. Exactly. And then you can put your whole head under there and no one will see it. It just looks like, you know, we can we can show puppets from the from the almost the knees up instead of the waist up. Yeah. Or even just the full body if the kilt's big enough. Well, yeah, if it goes to your ankles, but yeah. that's really isn't it really a dress then? I mean, let's yeah. just call it a dress. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a funny bit right there. Just a bunch yes. of guys walking around with kilts down to their ankles, like yeah. in a dress. It's not a dress. It's a kilt. No, it's a, it's that's a, a tartan skirt. dress. That's a dress. <laughs> I have a number of kilts, but I got one made. Mm. And when I was in Scotland, I had the full Monty, as it were, in terms of the eight ounce wool kilt made with sadly the family tartans for mcginnis and montgomery are not beautiful they think there's a hunting tartan it's not so bad but yeah. they've got pinks and yellows and raspberries and, and oranges and just stuff that's not particularly attractive so i think i just got a balmoral dress tartan but it's eight ounce wool so when you wear that in los angeles it's like wearing a sauna <laughs> so i can really only wear it around christmas time than thanksgiving to christmas here which is our thanksgiving's in late november so there's about yeah. eight weeks i can wear it without torturing myself or <laughs> sweating off 10 pounds on my thighs so uh yeah and scotland i guess you would want to have that very warm wool blanket yeah. wrapped around your yeah there's only about <laughs> two days a year where you'd feel uncomfortable wearing that that was it what well, billy's joke and it's <laughs> probably a standard was like there's we have two seasons in scotland winter and august 23rd <laughs> Yeah. Which, uh, I was there. I, okay, I was in, in Aberdeen, which is the north, yeah, northeast, and I was there in December. And there were guys surfing. What? Yeah, they were oh, surfing yeah. off the coast of Aberdeen. I think that is a thing. It, it's a thing. But yeah. talk about hardy stock. Jeez, what's mm. the North Sea in <laughs> December? Um, and I will say it wasn't brutally cold out. It was a nice kind of sunny day, which my friend who lives there is from yeah. there. It's like, you know, you brought the sunshine with you from California <laughs> because it's, it's not normally this sunny out. <laughs> yeah. But oh, I love the Scottish Highlands. I, I, I My dream was just get a car, just drive around and stay in little inns and stay in castles on the West Coast and the Hebrides. And, you know, yeah. just, that's where my, my mother's family is from is the West the Western Isles, but yeah, you know, I just need money. Yeah. That's all. Just send money so I can come visit. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, where are we able to keep up with you anywhere on websites and social media? Yeah, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all just Kirk R. Thatcher usually. It's either Kirk Thatcher or Kirk R. Thatcher. You can follow me on Facebook. I'm getting close to not being able to friend anybody because it's I'm close to 5,000 followers and friends, which is yeah. shocking, but you do the convention circuit. You, you gather quote-unquote friends but Twitter, I, I'm not as I'm Instagram and Twitter. I'm on, I guess, Facebook is every day. So if you just want to follow me on Facebook, usually mm-hmm. I can hear from you or you can see what I'm up to. I, I tend to go quiet when I'm working. So the next pretty much all of April, I won't be posting too much. And most of it's just silliness. Or And then there's my website, which is KirkRThatcher.com. Yeah. Just all one word with that R in the middle and Thatcher with a T, just like Maggie. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. But I'm only related to Dennis, so don't hate uh, me because okay. she was a Thatcher by marriage. So. Oh, of course. Yeah. The, yeah. That's, that was my defense when in, <laughs> in 1976 when I was in England. They're like, oh, you're here to visit your Aunt Margaret. <laughs> and we would jokingly say yes. And then people would scowl. Yeah. I'd say, well, we're really here to visit uncle dennis she's a thatcher by marriage and they go all oh, right yeah no good point <laughs> <laughs> so we never got punched <laughs> well thank you very much for coming on the show today then cheers sure it was fun 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The throbbing pulse of sound, the Toby Gribbon Show.